Well, on June 30th, 1859, a guy named Charles Blunden, he became the first person to ever walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And he actually ended up doing that several different times. He walked back and forth several times. He was suspended on this, this thin wire 160 feet above the raging waters below. 1,100 feet back and forth, back and forth. And, and as he began to do that, he began to not only walk back and forth, but he would stop and do some different tricks along the way. I, I've seen some pictures. I guess one of them, he actually took some kind of a stove up there and actually cooked something while he's on the tightrope. And so the crowds, as you can imagine, there was about 25,000 people gathered there that day, and, and they were pretty impressed. So he stops and he asks the crowd, he says, do you believe that I could push you across the falls in a wheelbarrow. And the crowd's all enthusiastic. Yeah, you know, we totally believe that you could do that. So he asked, which one of you would like to be the first volunteer to get in the wheelbarrow? And guess what? Nobody, nobody would get in that wheelbarrow. And I think he illustrates the idea that we're going we're gonna to kind of pull out of the passage that we're going to look at today, and that's this, that workless faith is worthless faith faith. Workless faith is worthless faith. I heard somebody this week, I I heard someone that said that faith is a lot like calories. You can't see it, but you can see what it does. And I think that's really true. We're going to see that that if we have faith, it's going to be revealed by the way that we live our lives and by the things that we do. And we're going to see that as as we go through the the, the book of James again this morning. We're going to talk about this idea of faith. Now, I, I just need to tell you right up front that this passage that we're going to look at this morning, some people consider it one of the most difficult passages in the Scriptures. And the reason for that is that they, they look at this passage and they begin to believe that, some, that James is somehow here contradicting Paul and the other New Testament writers that, that make it really clear that our salvation is by faith alone and not based on anything that we can do. But we're going to see this morning that, that James is writing from a little different perspective here. It's interesting because even Martin Luther, he, he looked at the book of James and he wrote this introduction and, and he later removed the remark, but, but at first he wrote that James was an epistle of straw because he erroneously believed that somehow that James was contradicting the things that the the other New Testament writers had written. So we're going to just jump right into this. We've got a lot to cover this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and take them out to uh, to James chapter 2. We'll pick up where we left off last week in verse 14 this morning. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, before we get into the text this morning, I I think it's really important that I take a few minutes and explain to you why, in fact, that, that, that Paul and the other New Testament writers, they're not writing something different than James. They're actually just coming at it from different perspectives, and so it's important that we understand the context in which, in which Paul and James are writing. And, and we know, first of all, that Paul, Paul is primarily writing to Gentiles, right? Most of the time. I mean, he goes into towns, he starts with the Jews, but he's primarily, he's primarily writing to Gentiles. And what he's mostly addressing is a legalistic kind of of gospel, a legalistic kind of salvation. He's dealing with a lot of people that are trying to teach these Gentiles that if you want to be a real Christian, what you have to do is you have to first become a Jew, and you have to follow all the Jewish laws, and then you can become a Christian. And so when he writes, he's focusing on on the truth, that salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's not based on anything that you can do. Now, James, on the other hand, remember, he's writing to a completely different audience. He's writing primarily to Jewish Christians. And these Jewish Christians, perhaps they'd even heard some of Paul's teaching, and and some of it was being used within, within their body. But what it led to is kind of a what I would call a libertine salvation. And they're being taught that, well, all you have to do is say you believe in Jesus Christ, and then you can just keep going on living your life any old way that you want. And, and the way that you live your life really doesn't matter because all that matters is you say, I have faith in Jesus Christ. And so they're writing from two different perspectives here. And so because they're writing from these two different perspectives, the way they use three key words, or the way that James uses three key words here is going to be completely different or at least have a different aspect to it than the way that Paul uses those same words when he's writing. The first of those words is the word faith. And when Paul uses that, he means volitional trust. In other words, trust that is so deep, like I illustrated with the kids, that that it results in you doing something about it. That you trust that deeply that you're willing to change your life based on what you believe. James, on the other hand, when he's talking about faith, in writing about here, he's primarily talking about knowledge or what we'll talk about a little bit later, an intellectual kind of faith. And so they're, they're using the word faith a little bit differently here. The second one is the word works. And I think this is really the key one we need to understand because when Paul is writing about works, he's primarily writing about works of the law. He's writing about the Old Testament law and the things that you had to do there and in and, and which some people believe were the, the reason that you were made right with God. He's, he's gonna, we're going to see in a minute. He says, no, that's not it. But he's talking about these works of the law, things that, that people try to do in order to be right with God. James, on the other hand, he's talking about works of love 
or what we might call the Christian lifestyle, the things that we do out of gratitude for the salvation that we have, as we're going to talk about more, the things that we do just to, to love other people, because that's what God wants us to do and not as a means of our salvation. Then finally, there's the word justify. It's a bit one of those big theological words that we throw around a lot, justify or justification. The word just literally means to declare someone righteous. And Paul, when he's speaking about justification, he's almost always writing about how we can be justified before God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That we're made right with God, that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ because we put our faith in Jesus. James, on the other hand, he's talking about how we're justified before, primarily before men based on the things that we do. In other words, how do, we, how do we demonstrate, how do we manifest that our faith is real to those, especially those who are outside the church, by the way that we treat each other within the body of Christ? And so there's, we need to understand that those are different. And we're going to see that right off the way because, because James begins here with, with a, a, or one more thing before I get there, that the, the, perhaps it's, it's good to think of it like this. We're just kind of sum everything up that Paul focuses on the root of our salvation. Where does it start? And that James focuses on the fruit of our salvation. What does it produce after we've, after we've put our faith in Jesus Christ? So again, they're coming from these, these different ways here, different approaches. And we see that right away in the, because James begins here with two questions. And these two questions in Greek or what are known as a negative rhetorical question. Simply means that the the questions are phrased in a way that the expected answer is no. So here's the first question that we see there. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? So what good is it, brother? So we could really kind of rephrase it like this. This is essentially what he's asking if we want to put it kind of in English. If someone says he he have faith, that's good. If someone says he has faith but does not have works, it's not really any good, is it? That's what he's asking. So the expected answer is no. If If someone says they have faith, but they don't have any works, it's not really good. And the key word here is good. It's a really important word here. And the word good means something like this. It means something that's that's beneficial, something that's advantageous, something that's that's profitable. And what he's saying here is someone says they have faith, but there's no works that go along with it. How how could that be profitable in the life of that person? And we're going to see in a moment... James isn't really even dealing here with the justification before God, that part of salvation. He's dealing with this question. If a person has a a faith that doesn't have works with it, what good is it for that person? What good is it for the people around them that they're interacting with? It doesn't have any profit if you have that kind of faith. The second question he asks then is this, can that faith save him? Can that faith save him? And the key word here is the word that. Unfortunately, some English translations have left the that out of there. 
But it's there. The article is there, and it's important because he's not just talking about faith in general, but he's talking about a specific kind of faith, right? The kind of faith that doesn't have works that go along with it. So we could, we could rephrase that question like this. That kind of faith can't really save him, can it? The expected answer is no. That kind of faith can't save him. But we need to talk about what does is, what is James mean here when he talks about saving him? What, what does he have in mind there? And we need to remember that we've talked about this before. There are different aspects to salvation, right? There's a past aspect. There's a present aspect. There's a future aspect. And Paul, when he writes, Paul is almost always dealing with the past aspect of salvation, when he's talking about justification, this idea that in the past, the very moment that I put my faith in Jesus Christ, I was justified before God. I was saved at that point in the past. And nothing can change that. I didn't do anything to earn it, so there's nothing that that anyone can do to take that away from me. I was saved. But James, he's dealing with the present aspect of salvation. I am being saved right now. Sometimes we call that sanctification. It's the idea that as I live out my faith day to day right now, God is is working in me to make me more and more like Jesus Christ. And that's what James is dealing with here. He's saying, can can the kind of faith that doesn't have any works in it, can it actually... Can it actually do something in my life to help me to become more like Jesus Christ? He says, no, it can't do that. And we see this really clearly when we look at verse 22 here. Here's what James writes in verse 22. You see that faith, it's talking about Abraham. We'll come back to that in a moment. He says, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. That word completed is important. It's the key one here. It could be translated perfect. We've seen this word before. It could be translated mature. And the idea here is it's saying that Abraham, as he lived out his life, that that he became more and more mature in his faith by engaging works that were consistent with his faith. Which is why we've said this morning that workless faith is worthless faith. Because Workless faith can't have any value in our life. It can't help us to become more like Jesus Christ. It can't help us to mature. It can't help us to love God and to love other people like we've been talking about here. And James helps us to understand that because in this passage, he he writes about four different kinds of faith here. And these are the kinds of faith that we can have. The first one is what I would call saying faith. He says, if a person says he has faith, and then he goes on to talk about it. And believe me, I'm really familiar with this kind of faith because there was a time in my life when this is the only kind of faith that I had. I've shared this, I think, with you before. When I was a student at the University of Arizona, I'm sitting down on the mall one day, and a young man comes up to me and shares the gospel with me. And I, quote, prayed to receive Jesus into my heart. And if somebody would have asked me, are you a Christian at this point? I would have said, yes, I prayed the prayer. I'm a Christian. But I can also tell you that at that point in my life, I had no intention whatsoever of changing anything about my life. I could say I had faith. And if you'd have looked at my life from the outside and you'd known me before that point and after that point, you'd say, Pat, absolutely nothing changed in your life. 
Now, I, I don't know for sure. Was I a Christian at that point? I guess God only knows. But I can tell you this, that that, that saying faith was useless. It didn't make any change in my life, and it didn't, it didn't change me in any way that benefited anyone else that was around me. Matter of fact, I don't even know if I told anyone else I did it. So it was saying faith. The second kind of faith that we see here is what I would call emotional faith. And we see that two places here. We see it, first of all, in verses 15 and 16. And here's what I would say is the common day equivalent of what we see in verses 15 and 16. You know, someone comes up to you, and they have some need, and what do you say to them? I'll pray for you. Now, I'm not discounting the prayer at all. But how many times do we even really do that? How many times do we even really pray for the other person? And how many times do we have the ability to go ahead and meet that need, but we don't do it, just like the example we see here in James? We have some way that we could help to meet that need, but we say, I have some good feelings towards you. You know, you hear that all the time, thoughts and prayers. My thoughts and prayers are with you. What good does that do anybody? Prayers maybe, but thoughts? It's an emotional faith only, and it doesn't do any good. And, and some of us have that emotional kind of faith. We see it in a second place here where he talks about the demons. It says the demons believe. I'll come back to that in a moment. It says, but they shudder. They shudder. They have some kind of a, a fear of God, but that fear of God doesn't lead them to do anything about it. And I think we live in a world where a lot of people have some kind of fear of God in some form, but they never do anything about it. It's just an emotional faith. Faith. They have these feelings. They have the emo- these emotions, but that's it. The third kind of faith we see here is what I would call an intellectual faith. And again, it's demonstrated here by the demons. It says that the demons believe. And we see this, don't we, all throughout the New Testament. Every time Jesus heals someone of a demon, the demons know who Jesus is. They know he's the Son of God. I would even go so far as to say they had great doctrine and they had great theology. But that's as far as it went. They never put their faith in Jesus. They never trusted in him. There was never any works that arose out of that. And James here, a couple places, he says, those three kind of faith, the saying faith and the emotional faith and the intellectual faith, he says they're all just dead faith. They're dead faith. And the word he uses there for dead does not mean non-existent. He's not saying they don't have any kind of faith at all, but the word dead could be translated something like useless or ineffective or even unprofitable. And the idea here is that, that those kinds of faith, they don't do anything to help us grow in our relationship with Christ. They don't do anything to help us to mature in our spiritual walk. They don't do anything to help us impact the lives of other people and have any benefit in the lives of other people, so they're dead. There's only one kind of faith that can do all those things, and that's the last kind of faith that he writes about here, and that is what I would call demonstrated faith. It's the kind of faith that that results in action in our lives. Things that are, that are profitable for us. And he gives us some examples here. And he gives us two examples. He gives us the example of Abraham, and he gives us the example of Rahab. 
to kind of show us what, what he's talking about here. What is this demonstrated faith? And you know, Abraham and Rahab, they could not have been more different, could they? Abraham's a man, Rahab's a woman. Abraham's a Hebrew, not a Jew yet, but he's a Hebrew. Rahab is a despised Canaanite. Abraham is a moral man for the most part. Rahab is a prostitute. And yet James uses both of them here as an example. And both of them, guess what? Both of them show up in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And both of them show up in the faith hall of fame in Hebrews chapter 11. Why? Because they, they demonstrated their faith. There was something special about their faith that they demonstrated. And I'm, I'm going to primarily talk about Abraham here. But a lot of the, just because of time situation. But, but a lot of the same things that could be applied to the life of Rahab. And I think it's really important at this point to go back and, and look at how Paul addresses because Paul and James, they're going to address the same exact situation, but again, they're looking at it from different perspectives. So back in Romans chapter 4, here's what Paul writes about Abraham. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified, there's that that word, so keep that in mind. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So for Paul, justification came at the very same time that he believed God. That's when he was justified. He says here, no, he wasn't justified before God later on by his works. If, if that had been the case, he'd had something to boast about. So for Paul, justification comes at the same exact time that he puts his faith in God. But James comes along, and both Paul and James are looking at the same events. Begins back in, in Genesis chapter 15, the, the verse that Paul just quoted there, it says, Abram believed the God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But then we go along all the way up to Genesis chapter 22, an event that happens probably about 30 or 40 years later in the life of Abraham. And all this time, Abraham has been living out his life. He's been doing works that are helping him to grow in his relationship with God. And in Genesis chapter 22, God comes to him and he says, Abraham, I want you to take and I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac, the son that through whom I promised that all the nations of the earth would be blessed one day, the son through whom all your descendants are going to come. And Abraham goes and, and he's ready to do that. And James says here that, that when he did that, when his actions, when his works matched up with what he said he believed, it was at that point that he was justified, not before God, but he was justified before men. And men would look at his life and say, yeah, his faith is real. I mean, look what he's willing to do. He was justified before God at the time of belief, but he's justified before man when he actually follows through which is why we said this morning that workless faith is worthless faith. Had, had Abraham not done that, he wouldn't have been able to show his faith, to demonstrate it before, before other people. 
If we want to grow in our relationship with Jesus, then we have to do works that are consistent with our faith, not because they justify us before God, but because they're beneficial for us and they're beneficial for those around us whose lives that we touch. Now, James is not writing something new here at all. Matter of fact, if we go back to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus essentially said the very same thing, didn't he? Here's what, here's what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, there's the saying, faith, right? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who what? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, say, there's the say again, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, And it fell, and great was the fall of it. Jesus is saying the same thing here. If you want to have faith that really helps you to grow in your relationship with me, it has to be a faith that's accompanied by works. So how do we apply all this? I I, I was thinking about this week. It's kind of ironic, right? A a message on on making sure that we actually are applying the Scriptures. I've spent 90% of the sermon just giving you a bunch of information. But I think the application is actually pretty clear here. Last week, we talked about the royal law, which was love your neighbor as yourself. And we talked about the fact that Jesus said the two most important commandments, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, these two applications really flow right from this. The first one flows out of this idea of loving God. And here's what I would say you need to do is to obey what you know. And you're saying to me, Pat, well, what does obedience have to do with love for God? I'll let Jesus explain that with his words. Here's what he said. Whoever has my commands and keeps them or obeys them, he is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If you really love God, then you will obey his commands. That's all there is to it. Not because it makes you right with him, not because it justifies you before him, but out of gratitude for what God has already done for you. Second application, this one flows out of how do I love my neighbor as myself? As you have opportunity, do good. As you have opportunity. Like I said earlier, I don't want to discount the, the, you know, prayer at all. Sometimes all we can do is pray for someone else. But you know what? A lot of times God has given us the ability to be the answer to that prayer. Sometimes we need to be the one to give that hungry person a meal or give our coat to the person who's cold. And guess what? Paul would totally agree with James on this point. Here's what Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. So then, as we have opportunity, what? Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
So in just a moment, I'm going to give you time to pray. I'll, I'll have some time for us to pray. And what I want you to do is just simply ask God two things. Show, God, show me where I'm not obeying you right now. And then as if he shows you something in your life that's going on where you're not obeying him, go ahead and confess that. And then make sure you do something about it. Secondly, ask him to give you an opportunity this week to do good to someone. I, I, I'm almost sure that is a prayer that God will answer in some way. So I want you to make this practical. About a month and a half before Charles Blondin um, had first gone across Niagara Falls on this tightrope, he finally did roll a wheelbarrow across from the Canadian side back to the American side. But he could, still couldn't find anyone that would get in that wheelbarrow. But on August the 14th of 1859, his manager, Henry Colcord, got on his back, and he carried Harry Colcord across Niagara Falls on his back on that tightrope. Henry Colcord, he had the kind of faith that we're talking about this morning. And that's the kind of faith that I pray that all of us would have. Not because that's the kind of faith that's required for us to have salvation, but because it's the kind of faith that will help all of us to become more and more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now just in these few moments that each one of us would just lay our hearts open before you. Father, right now, would you show us in our lives if there's any area of disobedience? And then, Father, as you do that, would you just help us to confess that to you and then to repent, to do whatever we need to to make that right before you. Also pray right now, Father, that you would give all of us some opportunity to do good this week. I don't know what that might be, but I pray that as you bring that into our life that we would see it you would follow through on that. And that as a result of that, you would help us to grow in our relationship with you. Help us to become more like Jesus. Father, we pray these things in his name and for his glory. Amen.